what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. We're all originals. You've all made America better, a better place, and you've made it seem a better place in the eyes of the people of the world. I'm Ian Wilder. I'm Fiona Hatch. I'm Sarah Nels. I'm Tyler Katzenberger. And I'm Allison Keeley. You're listening to 1050 Bascom, a podcast brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. Today, we wanted to bring back John Peavy House, professor and chair of the Political Science Department, to talk about the war that has erupted in the Middle East. An unprecedented surprise attack in southern Israel by Hamas, the Palestinian Islamist militant group that controls the Gaza Strip, has led to an increasingly deadly conflict with no resolution in sight. Hamas launched its coordinated attack on southern Israel on October 7th, firing rockets, invading Israeli towns and army bases, killing hundreds of people, many of them civilians, and taking Israelis hostage. Israel has retaliated with airstrikes in Gaza that have also killed hundreds of people, including civilians, and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has declared war on Hamas and united the Israel government that is now gearing up for a potential ground invasion. We appreciate Professor P.B. House helping our listeners understand the situation. So we'll start out with the basics. Professor P.B. House, could you give us a brief history of the region and the conflict between Israel and Palestinians? Sure. Um, Brief. Well, I guess the quick version is that, you know, Israel is created uh, in under UN Resolution 47 and 48. It's the British lead. They declare their independence. They're immediately attacked by states around them. And part of that war, they pick up territory that was not given to them initially by the UN, but that's the 1949 armistice. Fast forward to 1967, when there's another war, the Six-Day War, and they gain territorially the West Bank, they gain the Gaza Strip, and they gain the Sinai Peninsula. 73, there's another war, but no territory uh, changes hands. By the way, in 67, they also picked up the Golan Heights from Syria. There are no territory changes hands in 73. Fast forward to 1979, there's a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt in which Egypt gets back the Sinai Peninsula. At that time, Israel attempts to give the Gaza Strip to the Egyptians, and they refuse to take it. So Israel is left in charge of the West Bank, militarily in charge of the West Bank uh, and of the Gaza Strip. Of course, what's part of none of those discussions are the Palestinians, the people who live there. And so they're under Israeli military rule in the West Bank and in Gaza until 1993, when there's the Oslo Accords, which creates a framework for Palestinian statehood that was supposed to be achieved in five years. Obviously didn't happen, where Palestinians are given self-governance in parts of the West Bank and what we call areas A and partially in areas B. Then area C is Israeli-like settlements. or just uninhabited areas in in the West Bank. And then the Gaza Strip was also given to the Palestinian and the Palestinian Authority. And there were settlements in the West Bank and there were Israeli settlements in Gaza. Starting in 2003, the government of Ariel Sharon uh, in Israel announces that they're going to, Israel's going to leave and they're going to close the settlements and they're going to pull the IDF out of Gaza, leaving it to Palestinian Authority control. By 2005, that exit is complete. All settlements are moved out. The IDF moves out. In 2006, there's a Palestinian legislative election in Gaza, which replaces the PA, the Palestinian Authority, which was kind of a political arm technically of the PLO, one might say, or, or Fatah, it's military wing, with Hamas. So Hamas comes to power at that point. That starts a series of conflicts between the area of Gaza and Hamas in particular, and Israel, including lots of rocket attacks. 
two major conflicts, one in 2009, one in 2014, between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. And then we have it happened last week. And can you tell us some more about Hamas and what the mission of the organization is? Mm-hmm. Hamas is essentially a Palestinian group that was founded in 1987 during what we now know as the first intifada or the first uprising among the Palestinians. It was an offshoot in the Muslim Brotherhood. It technically started uh, as a military group called the Qassam Brigades, and they eventually become kind of a military slash political movement uh, that picks up adherence during the first intifada, which basically lasts from 87 to 93 until the Oslo Accords, really. They are supported politically by Iran and are given aid militarily and economically by Iran. Even since coming to power in Gaza, they've also been supported by Qatar financially. And so they are mostly, they're Palestinians. They are a political movement. They're also a social movement, though. They have provide schools. They run medical centers. They create parks, etc. So, and they've been designated, by the way, from the beginning as a terrorist organization by the United States because of the attacks that they've undertaken through the 80s, 90s, 2000s against Israeli targets and Israeli civilians in particular. And so because of that, we've always viewed them as a terrorist organization. But we also just shouldn't think that they're solely just a military organization. They're also a political organization as well. And that's why when you see individuals kind of aligning themselves with Hamas, it may be about their military goals, but also just could be because they received service provisions from them. But ultimately, you ask about their goals. I mean, their goal is to retake Israel from for the Palestinians. For many of them, it is to destroy Israel as a country. Can you explain a little bit more about how Hamas came to power? Um, You know, there have been some narratives online, some folks arguing that because Hamas was elected, that the Palestinian people might be attached to Hamas. And I'm just wondering if there's more context that can be provided around that. For sure. Okay, this is complicated. So as everything in the Middle East, it's complicated. Um, So Hamas was elected. The question is, why does someone vote for Hamas? Do they vote for Hamas out of desire to promote Hamas's ultimate goal, which is to take out after Israel and recapture Israel for Palestinians? Do they agree with Hamas because they went to a school run by Hamas or received help from a doctor who is affiliated with Hamas? Do they vote for Hamas or support Hamas because they hate the Palestinian Authority and view it as corrupt, right? I mean, just like people in the U.S. will vote not because they like someone, but because they dislike someone else. That could be happening here as well. But the one bottom line is we just don't know. I mean, since that election in 07, there have been no other additional elections. And in fact, we know that Hamas arrested or killed most of the Palestinian Authority figures in Gaza at that time. They either expelled them or killed them. We also know that during the Arab Spring, there were youth uprisings in Gaza to protest Hamas, and they put those down pretty violently as well. So, you know, one way to think about the situation of the typical Gazan is they're sort of living under a dictatorship in Hamas, and they're trapped by Israel and Egypt from leaving. And so they're doubly oppressed, if you want to think about it that way. They can't get out, and they likely can't do much in Gaza. And looking at Hamas today, what does Hamas want, and why did it attack Gaza now? Great question. So, you know, there's a couple arguments as to why Hamas acted when they did. One was that they feared a potential growing rapprochement between the Saudis and the Israelis. In the news for the last year has been reports that Israel, after making peace with some of the Emirate countries, right, with Bahrain and with the UAE and the Abram Accords and with Morocco, by the way, that next was going to be the Saudis and that the Saudis and the Israelis were going to have peace. That concerns Palestinians generally, but it especially concerns the Islamist movements among the Palestinians because 
Saudi Arabia is the last large Arab country with any kind of leverage left to make peace with Israel. And if they would do so without achieving a state, a Palestinian state, there's kind of no one left in their minds to stand up for them. Right? It's the Saudis are kind of the end of the road. So if they see the Saudis reaching a deal with Israel that does not include a state, that does not include Palestinian independence and like UN membership and all these things, they feel like they are at the end of the road. Hamas likely wanted to disrupt all of that. And so they thought this attack would be one way to do that. The second reason is because, look, there's been so much political instability in Israel over the last few years that I think many Palestinians in some ways like feel forgotten. Even in the U.S., right, American academics are increasingly talking about the end of the two-state solution, right, that there's never going to be a Palestinian state. And so if that is starting to hit home among part of the Palestinian population, that could drive them to say, like, we need to shake this up. We need to make Israel less comfortable with the situation. And certainly what happened last week uh, accomplished that. And you've been on the podcast before, not that long ago, to talk about the um, potential deal between Saudis and Israelis and Biden potentially trying to broker that. You know, based on the last time you were here, what do you think that the conflict between um, Israel and Hamas changes? Well, I think it reshuffles the deck in a pretty major way. I mean, look, the Hamas attack happens and Israel immediately starts striking Gaza. Now, we know a lot of Hamas's tactics, right? They hide fighters, they hide military equipment in mosques and schools and places in hopes that Israel won't attack them. Israel attacked them, right? And so you've got all these photos you can see anywhere of all of these mosques that have been bombed or religious sites that have been harmed. And of course, those then get beamed back to Saudi Arabia, right? And so this is making it less tenable for the Saudi leadership to say to their own population, and yes, they're a monarchy, and yes, you know, it's not a democracy, But ultimately, if you do something that unpopular, you have to worry about your longevity as a leader. And so it makes that diplomatically less tenable. Now, what Biden is trying to do right now, and others are trying to do right now, is to remind the Israelis and the Saudis this is exactly why Hamas did this. And so don't let them win by walking away from a deal with one another. I think the bigger short-run challenge is that world public opinion has become, I think immediately, obviously, in the aftermath of this, became very tilted towards sort of a pro-Israel stance. I think as people will see potentially the humanitarian crisis in Gaza worsen and worsen and worsen, if there's a ground invasion that gets ugly, and I think if there is a ground invasion, it will be ugly, that you know public opinion is going to turn back against Israel, where it kind of was a little bit prior to Hamas's actions. So the Biden challenge then becomes, <laughs> you've got a Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who may want this deal, but he's got to sell it at least to his family, the royal family, domestically and potentially to his population. You've got a weak Israeli government. Netanyahu, people rallied, of course, around the government after this, but Netanyahu's not going to survive this, I don't think, in the long run. So then, like, who's there to make peace? So that's why I say it's reshuffled the deck. It's sort of changed some of the actors. It's changed the dynamics uh, on the ground. And I think it has forestalled it for the time being. And speaking of the Israeli government, how has Israel responded so far in our you able to talk about the unity government that formed? Sure. So in the aftermath of the attack, Netanyahu basically agreed to form kind of a wartime cabinet where some of his opposition party members were allowed into that war cabinet. There were also several ministers without portfolio that were created that were given to opposition figures. The two key figures that you're likely reading about in this uh, are Gantz and Eisenkot. Gantz is sort of a center, center-right figure who's 
doesn't like Netanyahu, is opposed to Netanyahu, but has tremendous military experience and has a great reputation as a, as a military leader. Same with Eisenkot, who's more center, maybe even center left. Now, ultimately, one thing that did not happen in this unity government was that some of the, what most Israelis think of as the extreme elements of the Netanyahu government remained, right? You know, they were not, the Ben Gavirs uh, were not kicked out of the government as many hoped that they would be. So right now what you have because of the war situation is this sort of big unity group that lean right, have more of a center now than they did, but ultimately is still actually very unpopular. And you're starting to see more and more in Israel, I won't say it's anywhere near a critical threshold, but you're starting to see a lot of anger over the failure of what's viewed as a failure of intelligence, what was viewed as some early missteps by Netanyahu. And so I think there's going to be some un continued unstable domestic times ahead for Israel. Probably not in the next week or two, but in a month, in two months, quite possibly. I was curious about the intelligence mm. side of this. I feel like this was just such a surprise. Mm -hmm. Do you know if anyone, either the U.S. or otherwise, like had any clue that this was coming? So there were some reports early on that Egypt had warned Israel that there was some kind of imminent action that was coming on the part of Hamas. I don't know if that's true. Some fairly reliable people have said that that was true. I think, and I'll give uh, Professor Shalef credit here, he and I were talking about this and I thought he had a good insight, which is, you know, once a, once a country gets sort of comfortable with a strategic situation, as the Israelis were with Hamas, you kind of start ignoring things, right? And history is full of this. The, the famous U.S. example, two famous U.S. examples of this one was Pearl Harbor, right? You look historically, plenty of warnings that that was going to happen. Uh, and the Chinese crossing the Yalu in the Korean War, right? MacArthur was told, point blank, the Chinese are coming in, and he kind of had come to believe that the Chinese weren't competent enough to come in. And I think that's somewhat what you saw in the Israeli intelligence community. It's like, oh, even if Hamas wanted to do this, they don't have the ability to do it. We've degraded it too much. They don't have the sophistication to carry out something like this. And they were completely wrong. And I will say this, the Israeli intelligence officers have been the group in Israel that have sort of said, like, we got it wrong. Like, they've been very open in saying that they screwed this up. And they're one of the only, certainly none of the politicians have said that, but they've been the group that has come out to say, we messed this up and we've got to figure out why. You know, And so I think that's been, refreshing is the right word, but at least they've been very honest that they screwed this up. But I think kind of stability can breed overconfidence. And I think possibly that's what you saw here. I mean, again, I'm just taking the analogy out of history. You see this not infrequently in lots of conflicts. And we do not know yet whether the Hamas attacks were planned with Tehran's blessing or connivance, mm. but the fact that Iranians have in recent years increased funding and support for Hamas means that the attacks might have flowed in some way from Tehran's desire to surround Israel with enemies and to yeah. extend its power through its allies and proxies to disrupt any U.S. attempts to mediate a rapprochement between Israel and yeah. the Sunni Arab states. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little about Iran's role in the region and Iran's relationship to Hamas? Look, as you say, Iran's kind of one of their raison d'etres right now is to make life difficult for Israel. They support Hamas, which is clearly a, you know, a Palestinian group that is opposed to Israel. Um, they support Hezbollah, which is in control of southern Lebanon and plays a major role in the Lebanese government. They obviously have proxies in Syria, which they have been funding and training as a part of that Syrian civil war. 
So as you say, at least on kind of three fronts, Iran has major actors and assets that could act against Israel. And, you know, Iran publicly has called for the destruction of Israel, which is what makes people nervous about their nuclear program, for example. Mm -hmm. Hamas is one of those actors, right? It's hard to imagine Hamas being cut off from Iran. It's hard to imagine any kind of deal. I do think that Iran is worried about a Saudi-Israel rapprochement. I mean, the Saudis and the Iranians are hostile towards one another. This last year, China kind of created a temporary romance between the Saudis and Iran, mostly over Yemen and the proxy war they're undertaking there. But ultimately, there's no love lost between the Saudis uh, and the Iranians. And so you could imagine a scenario by which Iran playing an openly stronger hand against Israel, and this, this has been the Israeli argument, that as Iran is playing a stronger hand against them, they should ally with the Sunni-led Saudis to kind of continue and complete that block against Iranian influence in the region. Whether that holds water, whether that's going to fly in Riyadh, I, I don't know. And to change gears a little bit, um, in his opinion column in the New York Times, Ross Douthat writes, from the American perspective, the crisis in the Holy Land must be analyzed in terms of great power politics and the pressure we face from broadly aligned rivals, Iran, Russia, and China, on three fronts at once. And this Iranian strategy, in turn, without being explicitly conceived in concert with Moscow and Beijing, functionally aligns with those regimes' ambitions in Ukraine and towards Taiwan. What is your take on this analysis, and why is this the case? And is there any chance that, given this situation, this could erupt into a full-blown world war? No, uh, it's not going to escalate. Um, what do I think of that analysis? I mean, it is true that you know Russia, China, and Iran, they're countries the U.S. doesn't like, right? Uh, and that we have sort of varying levels of hostility towards at the moment. That said, the idea that they have a unified vision of what they want the world to look like, I don't agree with. I do think they all have territorial ambitions and they're near areas, right? China potentially with Taiwan, Russia obviously with Ukraine. Iran wants to continue to have significant influence in the Levant around uh, around Israel. But they have different capabilities. They have different ways that they're going to try to achieve those goals. China has been nowhere to be seen in the, the Hamas-Israel conflict. They've kind of been hiding under the table a bit and have frankly been you know, kind of all over the map, saying one thing one day, another thing another day. Chuck Schumer claimed he convinced them to change one of their statements. Like, who knows? But like, the point is, China's not playing a role here. And all Russia has done is just continue to blame the U.S. for what's going on. But they've been doing that for 25 years. So that's not new. So I don't think this is going to escalate into some greater great power conflict. I don't think China's watching how the U.S. responds to this as any kind of indicator for how we'd respond to them invading Taiwan. I think they might have watched Russia and their invasion of Ukraine for some lessons there, but not this particular conflict. I mean, ultimately, you know, a lot of political scientists debate this question of reputation, including our own folks like Professor Renshaw and Professor Kidd. Like, if you don't defend your ally here, does that mean you're not going to defend them there? And it's just like, it's not clear states think this way like maybe they take lessons from that but then sometimes that leads to overconfidence and they you know it's so it's like it's not a clear answer to that and i don't think china's taking any kind of cues from this i think china's scrambling to try to figure out what the heck's going on and, and what they should be saying about this do you think that that plays into a narrative from folks that's maybe a little bit too great power heavy yeah. um i know that that's something that's been i mean obviously the u.s has had conversations about china's a rising power yeah gallagher leads the select committee on china 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering, like, does that is that narrative maybe a little bit overplayed? Uh, it's overplayed in this particular context. I don't think it's overplayed generally. I mean, about two months ago, there was a Council on Foreign Relations event with Blinken. And, you know, he stood up and the first thing he said was, the post-Cold War era is over. We are back to an era of great power competition. That's the way the U.S. sees this. And that's the way everyone is going to start talking about the world. Now, the columnist, the New York Times columnist, from that perspective... That's probably his thinking, right? Like, if we're living back in this world like the Cold War, where everything is seen through the great power perspective, that's how we have to think about this. I mean, that was one of the mistakes the U.S. made during the Cold War. We saw everything through the communist versus not communist perspective and made a lot of missteps because of that. And so I hope that's one lesson we've learned from about great power competition is not it all cannot be put through this lens. Uh, and that, in fact, much more is about the subtleties of regional conflicts or actors in a particular situation that may or may not be tied to Russia or China or Iran in this case. In this case, we know they're tied to Iran. But, but you know, are Iran and China thinking the same things about how this is going to play out? I would highly doubt it. And on a related note, what role might the U.S. want to play from both a strategic point of view and a moral one? Right. Great question. So, look, the situation in Gaza prior to this was horrible. The humanitarian situation was frankly untenable. The hope of many people was that, oh, the people of Gaza will rise up. But Hamas was a brutal dictatorship. They're not going to allow that to happen. So then from a moral standpoint, what does the U.S. do? I mean, what the U.S. needs to be thinking about, and I think is thinking about, is like what happens the day after, whether it's the day after the invasion, the day after Israel declares Hamas is no more, which by the way, I think is impossible. And what is the U.S. role in this? I mean, there's several scenarios. One is that the U.S. could become somehow directly involved. I find that highly unlikely. I think the U.S. could sort of pay people to be involved, whether it's Egypt, other Arab states, to sort of come in and take over. I think the U.S. could try to diplomatically facilitate the Palestinian Authority coming back into Gaza which might be tenable. But that's sort of one of our moral obligations in this conflict is to think about and try to set the diplomacy wheels in motion to think about the day after. Militarily, I think the U.S. is going to support Israel. I think diplomatically, we're trying to really get, for example, Egypt to allow a humanitarian corridor. And what's that going to take? Is that going to take the U.S. bribing Egypt with some kind of aid? Is that going to take threats to Egypt? It's not clear how that's going to play out, if I were to guess. I think the U.S. is going to essentially offer humanitarian, logistic, and probably financial support to anyone who wants to try to improve the humanitarian situation there. No boots on the ground, no massive aid packages, I don't think, for Gaza. There's no way that gets through Congress, even Mm -hmm. if they do have a speaker. I think that's untenable politically here, but I think you will see, and I think you have seen, the U.S., engaging in some version of shuttle diplomacy to try to address the moral issues and the security issues there. And with what we know now, what is going to happen to Gaza in the near future? Well, again, I mean, I think there's different scenarios. Mm -hmm. I think President Biden has warned Israel against occupation. He's right to warn them against occupation. And in fact, I don't think Israel wants to occupy. Again, they've tried to give it to Egypt. You know, it's like Israel doesn't, they've already disengaged once. Like, And in fact, in 2014, they went in like a mile or so in around the perimeter and came back out. Israel doesn't want to leave people there. The only way they would is if they feel like there's kind of an imminent danger, but even that's going to be so ugly. So the the kind of morbid calculation Israel has to do is, are they going to suffer more security risk by 
maybe not going in, maybe by going in quickly and coming back out, and then not taking out Hamas and leaving Hamas to fight another day? Are they going to suffer more damage from that? Or are they going to suffer more damage going in in a major ground invasion in terms of lives lost and casualties and creating long-run resentment among the Palestinians in Gaza? That's a morbid, difficult calculation. I will say that I think in the aftermath of this attack, Israel had a window where a ground invasion I thought was likely, highly likely, and would have received moderate to high international support. I think that window is closing. I think every day they do not go in, that window closes a little bit more. I still think it's open and I still think it's likely, but I think the worse the humanitarian situation gets, that window closes. And again, ultimately here, you know, one of the main losers in all of this is the Palestinians who are in Gaza, who already had massive unemployment. It's a young population, half of which is under the age of 18, probably 40% is under 14. Poor water facilities, poor sewage facilities, poor electricity grid. And part of that is the fact that you've had a lack of trade, a difficulty for them to make a living because of the Israeli restrictions, but also because of Hamas. Right? And Hamas has undertaken a variety of policies, which has also led to the de-development of Gaza. You know, it's, there's not just one problem in Gaza. You know, there's a lot. And it's just hard to imagine the massive humanitarian effort that's going to be needed to fix what's going on there. Even if the war goes well, and even if the war were to stop tomorrow, it's a human tragedy. As were these Hamas attacks in Israel, right? Horrid, horrid attacks. And I think that's something else that people are thinking about and want to revisit. This repertoire of violence that Hamas took on was something different than we'd seen from before. And I think that's making people think a lot, as it should, about how Israel treats Hamas, how we think about Hamas as a political or military organization. And so, you know, we've seen too many innocents um, on both sides of this, you know, and ultimately there's a lot of fingers to be pointed. But I think if you want to think about the day after challenge, it's hard. It's going to take a lot of international actors involved here. Um, is there anything we haven't talked about yet that we should? Now, I'm interested to see how long the unity government lasts in Israel. I think, again, in the short run, especially if there's a ground invasion, it lasts a while and Israelis will rally around it. But man, people are already fidgeting uh, a bit about this. And look, in the 73 war, when there was kind of a surprise attack by Egypt and Syria on Israel, they fought the war, you know, Kissinger does shuttle diplomacy, the war comes to an end, everyone disengages, and then Israeli politics really took out after, like, why did this fail? Why did this happen? And I think you're going to see the same thing. And are there any positives out of this situation in the long term Boy, that you can envision? Uh, in the short run, no, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Look, spinning out one optimistic scenario would be that people now have focused again on Palestinians, the lack of Palestinian statehood, kind of, again, is there a two-state solution possible? And that this could bring some kind of, again, in the medium term, not in the short term, but in the medium term, some kind of crisis that facilitates people going back to negotiation, people trying to do something land for peace oriented. You know, you saw this after the first Gulf War. This is where the Oslo process kind of starts in the aftermath of the first Gulf War. The challenge to that is the other thing we know from political science is that when a society undergoes trauma, political trauma, economic trauma, they tend to lurch away from cooperation with those that they blame. 
and they tend to elect leaders who promise not to cooperate with the people who unleashed those forces. Right? The, for the populists, it was the elite who caused that recession. In Central Europe, it's the same thing, right? And Israel may be unhappy with Netanyahu, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if there's new elections, they're going to elect a bunch of center-left politicians who are calling for peace. They may do the exact opposite. They may vote in large numbers for right. Meaning parties who say we can never have peace with the Palestinians and we will never allow a Palestinian state. That's the depressing version. The, the optimistic version is the international community finally gets its act together and says, look, we have to do something to address this, which frankly includes putting some pressure on Israel diplomatically to solve this problem. No one's in the mood to do that today, but in a year, maybe. That would be the most hopeful possible silver lining. Yeah, Professor Bibihouse, thanks so much for coming on and helping us shed some light on this very complicated situation. Thanks for having me.